Hello, and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and I thank you so much for being with us. Lots of things to talk about this episode, so we're going to begin at the beginning. The August 29th drone strike that America was told knocked out a car heading to Kabul airport in Afghanistan with explosives, that narrative has turned out to be a work of fiction. That lie cost 10 civilians their lives, including seven children, the youngest of which was two years old. The driver of the car that was targeted turned out to be a U.S. aid worker. What American intelligence said were explosives aimed at killing American soldiers turned out to be water bottles. A secondary blast in a neighborhood near the attack may well have been propane gas. Investigators concluded that the car was struck and it was no threat at all. Now, several things jump out as a result of this horrific blunder. First, the American public were told in the wake of the ISIS attack on Kabul's airport that killed 13 U.S. soldiers that the strike on August 29th was to stop another attack on the airport. We were told this with a great degree of certainty on the part of the military that the military had acted in the profound belief that an attack was imminent. And of course, we heard a lot of news stories in the run-up to that attack that there was going to be some sort of bomb uh, or some sort of situation where U.S. troops were going to be under attack. So that means, in addition to not having intelligence to thwart the first attack, some people might forget that. The military and intelligence people botched the drone strike. The military sent condolences to the families of those killed and talked about reparations. Not good enough. Not nearly good enough. Neither is their promise to find out what went wrong. The fact is, it took a New York Times investigation to bring this botched strike to light. Three names stand out in this situation. One, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, Joint Chiefs of Staff, Chair General Mark Milley, number two, and General Kenneth McKenzie, head of U.S. Central Command. More on Milley later, but one or more of these three are likely to lose their jobs over this. Much as I like both Austin and Milley, this is unforgivable. To take innocent human life, the lives of children, your intelligence better be really, really good. Now, to be fair, this is not the first time U.S. drone strikes have gone terribly, terribly wrong. It's happened before in Afghanistan, and it's happened before in Iraq. There have been calls by members of Congress and others to moderate or even stop using drones in this way. Expect them to get louder in the wake of this. If the Biden administration's posture is any indication, drone strikes are likely to continue. In addition, America just handed the Taliban a guilt-edged propaganda tool to use against the U.S. In the end, Joe Biden's enemies will see this as yet another arrow in their quiver. Right-wing calls for his impeachment, yes, his impeachment, are also likely to get louder. The military has admitted its initial assessment of the driver of the Toyota sedan that was struck was wrong. Every single blunder 
that followed flowed from that. And of course, the central question is how does the military, intelligence community, and politicians, how do they all learn from this and do better? This drone strike comes at the end of a chaotic and ugly American withdrawal from Afghanistan. As I said in the previous episode, everyone, especially politicians, will be looking for someone to blame. Because, you see, politicians won't blame themselves. They never do. They'll be looking for a fall guy, and that could well be Austin, Millie, or both. Further down the food chain, the person who pinpointed that innocent Toyota and the person who gave the order to blow it up could be the person or persons to take the weight. The Pentagon won't even name the person who in the end ordered the strike. And beyond all that, what of the Afghan people? If they felt disposable before this awful error, what must they think now? As I said earlier, the families of the dead children will likely be compensated. They have demanded compensation. But how do you compensate for killing seven children and a friendly worker by mistake? If I were Joe Biden, and I'm not, I'd suspend the use of drones pending a thorough review of the intelligence apparatus that targeted these innocents. It should be the least America can do. While we're on the subject of Mark Milley, the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, that is, he finds himself in hot water over some revelations in a new book by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa. The book deals with the waning days of the Trump presidency and fears on Milley's part that Trump would launch a strike against China to remain in power. Now, this, of course, was in the wake of the Capitol insurrection on January 6th of this year. So worried was Milley that he called his opposite number in China to reassure him no attack was coming. That was, and it turned out to be, the second of two phone calls. And again, Milley also gathered top military people to remind them of the procedures for launching a nuclear weapon. Apparently, he took Trump's ability to do so, and the fact that he had his finger on the nuclear trigger very, very seriously, as did the Chinese. Now, he also, in addition, had a conversation with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, during which she called Trump crazy, and Milley reportedly agreed. Now we're finding out about all this because it, in part, sells books. Peril, the Woodward and Costa book, is due out this week. Regardless, a military person taking it upon his or herself to stop a sitting president from using military power is a serious act, and perhaps a serious breach. There are Milley's enemies who are calling for his head. Now, that shouldn't surprise anybody. To his credit, President Biden has expressed confidence in the chair of the Joint Chiefs. And I have to say, some of the people who want to see him gone are just as upset about his support for teaching critical race theory in the military as they are about anything else he's done. As I said earlier, I like both Milley and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. I also think, as the clock ticked down to Biden's inauguration, Donald Trump would have done just about anything to stay in power. Trump responded to the revelations in the book by calling Milley's actions treason and asserting he never thought 
about invading China. Maybe. Yet it's also true that others in his administration, his own administration, were as nervous about Trump's behavior as Milley was. So in the end, who exactly is Mark Milley? Is he the patriot who tried to protect his country or a traitor who breached military protocols because of his own perception of the president of the United States? Depends on who you ask, obviously. Yet before you judge, ask yourself this. Suppose a high-ranking military officer decided that Joe Biden was senile. Would that officer be justified in calling a U.S. adversary because of that belief? If you put the shoe on the other foot, Millie's actions perhaps lose their luster. That being said, I for one am glad he did what he did. How about you? Up next, climate disinformation. Are you surprised Big Oil stands accused? This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. The House Oversight Committee will soon be hearing from representatives of big oil. They're looking into the question of whether the nation's largest oil companies, as well as lobbying groups, have been spreading disinformation about the role of fossil fuels in spreading global warming, both in the United States and around the world. That's right, around the world. And what have we seen weather-wise this year alone? Wildfires in the West destroying 2 million acres of land. There's Hurricane Ida, which cut a path of destruction from New Orleans to New York City. Then there's the extreme heat that parts of the country endured. And by the way, some of those parts of the country had never experienced that kind of heat in their history. You get the picture. So what does the Oversight Committee, one of Congress's most powerful committees, want to know from big oil? Among other things, they're going to focus on Exxon and a lobbyist who claimed in a previously secret video that the oil giant had funded shadow groups to fight President Joe Biden's climate agenda. Those groups, according to the video, targeted individual senators to that end. As is typical of politicians, which I mentioned a little earlier, several said the lobbyist was exaggerating their relationship. Some others said they had no dealings with him at all. For the oil bigwigs, the stakes are high. They're hot to protect fossil fuel subsidies that are contained in a tax overhaul that was dealt with last week, which is sort of like saying this country is willing to shoot itself in the foot on climate change and pay somebody to pull the trigger. It's not clear yet whether the oil companies will turn up for the Oversight Committee hearing, which is set for next month. If they decline, the committee does in fact have subpoena power. They'll also likely be looking at how ExxonMobil researchers acknowledged the role of fossil fuels in global warming, while at the same time adopting a questioning posture to the public. This foolishness doesn't regularly get much attention in media. Too many prefer to focus on the inconvenience caused by climate activists when they block highways or other facilities. Yet here is a fundamental question. Why should the fossil fuel industry get one thin dime in subsidies when almost all of them 
make stupid money year after year. Really kind of beats me. I don't want to say that when history looks back at these types of things, but and I, I don't want to say it because I've said it before, but I have to tell you, history will judge us all very, very harshly if we don't get serious about climate change. If we're not prepared to do that, it will come back to bite us, if it hasn't already. Up next, Simone Biles and other U.S. gymnasts call out the FBI. About what? Stay with us. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Last week, U.S. gymnast Simone Biles and several colleagues testified before a United States Senate committee about the scandal surrounding Larry Nassar, the Team USA gymnastics team doctor who is currently serving a long prison sentence for abusing dozens of young athletes under his care. Simone Biles didn't mince words. She took to task all the players in the gymnastics food chain. She also said many of those involved in USA Gymnastics knew about Nasser's abuse, but did little or nothing to stop it. At the heart of her testimony, and that of fellow gymnasts, was that the FBI back in 2015 was made aware of the abuse allegations, but didn't share the information with state and local authorities. That, in effect, meant the abuse lasted longer than it should have. Biles and others, including Olympic gold medalists Allie Raisman and Michaela Maroney, added that while Nasser is in prison, the potential for abuse of others remains. All three tell a stunning tale of law enforcement mishandling of their allegations. That FBI probe was back in 2015. I cannot help but wonder if the apparent indifference shown then had something to do with the fact that these were young females who made the charges. Worse yet, I wonder if the FBI's lack of due diligence has been corrected. That is perhaps is why there was a Senate hearing in the first place. If we can't keep children safe and believe them when they allege abuse, how can we call ourselves a nation that treasures children? I'm just asking. Coming up, Nicki Minaj and some of the strangest back and forth I've ever heard. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Answer me a question, if you would. How does a rapper's tweet get elevated to the highest levels of government, both here in the U.S., the U.K., and Trinidad and Tobago? 
What a way to pick a fight. I'm of course talking about Nicki Minaj and her tweet that alleged a friend of her cousin in Trinidad became impotent, had swollen testicles, and lost his bride-to-be after being vaccinated against COVID-19. Minaj went further, saying she wouldn't be attending the recently concluded Met Gala in New York because she wasn't yet vaccinated and the gala required proof. Of course, her tweet went viral. And she later backtracked just a little, saying people who had to get vaccinated to keep their job should definitely do so. From here, things went off the rails. And I mean, went off the rails fast. But before we get to that, consider what Nicki Minaj said. A friend of her cousin. That's right. Friend of her cousin. Not even someone she might know personally. In other words, her evidence was purely anecdotal. The definition of anecdotal. Yet somehow, Britain's top doctor, Chris Witte, took time from a Downing Street news conference to criticize Minaj's tweet. Here are Witte's exact words. Quote, There are a number of myths that fly around, some of which are just clearly ridiculous, and some of which are clearly designed just to scare. That happens to be one of them, end quote. He added that the people who propagate such myths ought to be ashamed of themselves. Maybe. Not to be outdone, however, Prime Minister Boris Johnson chimed in about not knowing Menage's work, all that well, that is, but... He urged people to get vaccinated, which, of course, is what a prime minister ought to be doing. All this from a tweet from a rap artist. Yet it wasn't over. Nicki Minaj unleashed a bizarre rant, saying, among other things, that she's British, went to Oxford and attended school with Margaret Thatcher. One assumes this was her not so clever attempt at sarcasm. Yet some in the UK took her seriously, seriously enough that she became a trending topic on British talk shows. Meanwhile, the health minister of Trinidad and Tobago conducted an investigation and concluded there was no record, no medical record of any kind to document what Minaj alleged about her cousin's friend. This truly boggles the mind. First, London then port of Spain. But it wasn't done quite yet. Last week, the White House confirmed it had invited Minaj to talk to a doctor on the phone about the vaccine. She immediately thought it was an invite to the White House itself. In the words of the great Casey Stengel, can't anybody here play this game? Yet the real question here should be painfully obvious. Why do so many people, I assume mostly young people, get their information from social media in the first place, social media in general, and somebody like Nicki Minaj in particular? I, I, it, it boggles the mind. I have to ask, do many of them, any of them, actually fact check the information that they're fed? Why is Nicki Minaj a credible purveyor of health information? The answer, of course, lies in critical thinking. 
in the distant, and I emphasize distant past, I was taught how to think critically in school, specifically in high school. I'm not so sure today's educators understand how to inject critical thinking into the digitized world their students now inhabit. Now, it dawns on me that maybe critical thinking doesn't really have all that much to do, if anything, with how people receive information. I have been very, very lucky in a long career to, first of all, have been taught critical thinking in high school and then to have applied it time after time after time as a journalist, as somebody who has to report facts, although not all journalists do that these days either. And see, here is the really fun part of all this. I think Nicki Minaj will end up getting vaccinated for a very good reason, and she even said it. She'll need it to go on tour. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.